ask a non-Christian or even a Christian what the point of the Christian faith is. And they will likely tell you something like, Jesus came so I could live forever. Except that isn't what our texts this morning tell us. Our two texts, one from John's Gospel and the other from the letter we know as 1 John, paint a different picture of the essence of the Christian faith. John's Gospel tells us that Jesus' purpose is to bring us a life of peace capable of forgiving others even when belief is hard. And the opening two paragraphs of 1 John invite us to a faith not seeking understanding as much as experiencing joy, a complete joy, a full life. Last week we asked three questions, three old questions. What gospel do we proclaim? Do we live as if the resurrection really happened? Is the resurrection our grace? These are the questions that Easter spawns in our lives. In the day-to-day reality of life as we find it, these questions may not measure up to the power of sermons such as the ten fear knots of Scripture, or the five wounds of Jesus, or the eight steps to becoming a servant leader, all of which are sermons available for you on (laughs) sermons.com. But there is no more central question to the church than how we live in light of what we believe about the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection defines everything. As Christians, we look to the New Testament as a guide about how to be the church. We we talk about wanting to go back to the New Testament, go back to the early church, go back to the, the church of Acts. If we could only recover the church as it was back then. What we often neglect in our readings of the New Testament is that the, the letters and the sermons and the teachings that make up most of the New Testament are written to people in congregations in the context of really broken and damaged relationships. And they're trying to recover a sense of purpose and life together. The New Testament's written to people who are fighting with each other. And we want to go back to that. (laughs) Our gospel reading this morning in John 20 is a reminder of how difficult it is even when Jesus has commissioned the disciples to stay focused on the purposes of following Christ. One guy doesn't show up to the meeting and everything gets thrown out of whack. But it is the letter that we know is 1 John that unpacks for us this morning a resurrection word in a broken time. 1 John 1, 1 to 2, 2 consists of two distinct text units, 1, 1 to 4, and 1, 5 to 2, 2. In verses 1 through 4, John dives headfirst into a controversy about who Jesus is. There's no prologue, there's no greeting, there's no warming up to the subject, there's no beating around the bush. He just straight ahead, right at him, proclamation of who Jesus is. And I say, thank God. 
The church John was writing to may have been full of dissent and argument and even anger. But at least they were arguing about something important. It wasn't the color of the carpets in the fellowship hall that was provoking dissent. It was, who is Jesus for us? And that is the first question that must be asked and answered in the Christian faith. Who is Jesus? How we answer that question shapes everything. John begins, verse 1a, with four sensory verbs that are intended to assert the incarnation of Jesus. He's reminding us that Jesus has been seen and heard and touched, that he was a real, fully alive, fully human person. And his life, teachings, death, and resurrection continue to echo into history. The first two verbs in verse 1 are in the perfect tense, meaning we could better translate what we have heard and continue to hear, what we have seen and continue to see. As Jesus made it clear to Thomas in our gospel reading, John makes it clear to his community that it is not just about the experience of the historical Jesus, but it is the ongoing story his followers continue to embody that matters. It is in community John asserts that we continue to experience the humanity of Jesus. In the last part of verse 1 and in verse 2, we're introduced to a theme of John's, the word of life. And while there are other points of comparison between the gospel prologue in John 1 and 1 John, In the gospel, the use of the word logos in the prologue, word, is a personalized reference to Jesus. Here in 1 John, John uses logos as an equivalent to message. This is the message of life that I want to give you. Here's this Jesus, this incarnated, divine, human, son of God, and here's his message John's purpose is reminding a church that has become bitterly divided over questions about Jesus that the reason any of it matters is that Jesus' story is ultimately a story about life. The Jesus story isn't a story about deciding who's in and who's out. It isn't a club that's been handed to the church to beat sinners over the head with. It's story of life. It's an invitation. And that message of life serves as the very basis of Christian community, of fellowship, of, in verse 3, koinonia. We're not united, John says, because we like each other or because we vote the same way or because we have the same opinions on pressing social matters of the day. We're united in and through and only by the message of the resurrected Jesus. It is this reality, verse 4, that fulfills our joy. Our joy comes from a unity based solely, completely 
unequivocally in the risen Lord. Our being as people stems not from some debate about nature and nurture, between orientation and choice. Our being, our identity, our essence, our joy is grounded solely, completely, and unequivocally in the message of Jesus. First things first. John lays this out at the beginning to remind this bitterly divided, contested, argumentative church, nothing like us, that, uh, you caught that, right? Okay, <laughs> nothing like us, that, that first things are first, that it's about Jesus. And then we unpack the other stuff. That begins in chapter 1, verse 5. John unpacks for his community the essence of Jesus' message. In verse 5, John uses a rhetorical style and a set of images that make us uncomfortable in our postmodern, post-Christendom culture. He talks about the duality of light and dark. John sees the world in two exclusive realms. And for John, the, the, the Christian experience is a transfer of domicile. We move from darkness into light. The Jesus message intends to transform us, John is declaring, to shift our perspective, to change our vision from one that squints in the darkness to one lived fully in the light. The final seven verses, chapter 1, 6 through 2, 2, contain three conditional clauses, these wonderful if-then statements that are part of the whole structure of the New Testament. And they're designed to counter false teaching that's going on in John's community. And it uses a sort of negative-positive format. And these three clauses establish a set of understandings of who Jesus is. In verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, the format tells us that that modeling the Christian way is a matter of consistently seeking fellowship with one another by means of obedience to Christ. We cannot be in fellowship with God or one another, John asserts, if we are unwilling to walk in the light. It is Jesus and his death and resurrection that makes true koinonia possible. We, we discover that truth that reality that, that we don't have fellowship with one another unless Christ is at work transforming us. In verses 8 and 9, the conditional clause tells us that we live lives not of sinlessness, but rather in the spiritual discipline of confession, we experience the one who is utterly faithful and always forgiving. There is a, there's implicitly a call in these verses to a discipleship that includes the transparency of confession. That we can admit to God, to ourselves, and to one another that we are broken. In chapter 110 through 2.2, the last of these conditional clauses suggest that our denial of our sinfulness 
is both pointless and unnecessary, as Christ is an advocate, literally one who stands alongside, the same word that the gospel gives us as paraclete, the Holy Spirit, is the word used here. Christ is an advocate who comes alongside us and all people everywhere with the certainty of forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't conditional thing that's withheld until we get our act together. Until we, until we can conform to the norms and standards of the community, we will keep you kind of on the fringe. It doesn't happen here. Instead, we have an advocate, the resurrected one, who comes alongside us and says, you're forgiven. Yes, you're broken. Yes, it hurts. And I am with you always to the end of the age. In short, John's message is that the incarnated and resurrected Jesus is God's message to a broken world. He is the one that fulfills our lives in the here and now by drawing us into the light that creates true fellowship that enables us to experience forgiveness and that stands alongside us in advocacy before God as we follow him. But the irony of that amazing message is that it requires us to come out of our self-indulgent denial and admit to ourselves and to God and to one another the depth of our brokenness. The late Robert Kaser, a great New Testament scholar and preacher, once noted that only by affirming the brokenness of our lives do humans avail themselves to the divine restructuring of existence. We would rather simply have Jesus wave a magic wand so that we can live forever. Preferably live forever with a growing net worth in our portfolios, if you please. <laughs> but see, the resurrection isn't just hallelujahs. The resurrection is a call to discipleship. It's a call to leave behind the darkness of the night and enter into the bright dawn of a new life. That process is not a simple calculation of quantum mechanics and orbital rotations and stars burning in space. The call to discipleship can only begin with ruthless honesty about the commonness, gravity, and complexity of our brokenness. The resurrection has no hope for those who believe they are in no need of transformation. But if we are willing to enter in to such transparency with ourselves, with God, and with one another, then we find ourselves discovering the deep joy of true fellowship, the rich healing of true confession and the total certainty of Christ on our side. So this morning, three more questions. How do we live in denial about our brokenness? What is it about transparency and discipleship that troubles us? 
do we really believe in the spiritual discipline of confession? There may be other passages or other questions that this passage raises for us. Let's take a couple of minutes and talk back to each other. Reflect on the questions, observations, and hopes that this passage brings us. What do you think as you hear John's gospel?